0: Sometimes a conversation goes off the rails, and that is exactly what happens today with our guest. Maybe not so much off the rails, but off-road, and I mean way off-road. Today we channel a little bit of David Bowie, some glitter, and kitties too. We have many fun detours, laughs, and a few deep and maybe some naughty thoughts on this week's podcast with queer author, personal finance blogger, and radio show host Lillian Carabake of Oh My Dollar. Before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to all of you. We've seen an increase in downloads, and that means that some of you are sharing the podcast. Thanks, we appreciate it. If you love the show, share it with someone you know. Now, let's laugh a bit. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is queer money. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We're excited about this one because we actually get to share someone with you that is a part of our queer community and are part of our queer personal finance community, which we absolutely love. We know that there's lots of space in the personal finance space for more of you. If you want to join us, we certainly would be happy to have you become part of the queer personal finance family. So let's introduce to you Lillian Karabik. Lillian, why don't you introduce your fabulous self to us because John and I are familiar with your online presence and we want our audience to hear more about you.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Lillian and I host a radio show and podcast called Oh My Dollar, which focuses on money for millennials. A lot of our stuff covers queer topics just because I'm queer myself. But mainly, the main thing I focus on is making it so people that are artists, freelancers, nonprofit workers feel comfortable making money decisions because, you know, capitalism is oppressive and trying to figure (laughs) out a way to navigate this world can be really disconcerting. I also have a book that just came out called Get Your Money Together that is cats explaining personal finance. So lots of (laughs) illustrated kitties will walk you through everything you need to know about money.
0: Absolutely love that. You know, John and I would just recorded another podcast and he made a reference to when you're on Facebook and you run across cat videos. It sounds like either you can take his advice from that one or you can maybe flip over to Lillian's book, book and you can still get some cute cat pictures <laughs> and some I, financial we, advice.
1: We actually just published a video last week called 401 kittens.
0: Oh, and
2: nice. It
1: is me surrounded by kittens at the cattery at one of our local shelters explaining 401ks. Oh, nice.
2: <laughs> I don't know. That, that could be distracting. I yeah, so, well, <laughs> right.
1: you can get your kitten videos and also feel like you're doing something you've been putting off.
2: <laughs> right. so. so it sounds like your specialty is breaking down the taboo of money, the fear that we have of of talking about money by engaging people in creative ways. Recently, we had on a guest who was inspired to become debt free because of Elton John. And (laughs) you're using, if I understand it correctly, Ziggy Stardust to help people understand their finances.
1: Yeah, I like to call him Kitty Star Budget, actually. He's (sighs) a cat inspired by David Bowie. But I often myself dress up like David Bowie. I probably dress up like David Bowie about every 10 days um, for the past 10 years. <laughs>
2: nice. So, <laughs> and is that always so up for other people, or do you just sometimes dress like that for yourself?
1: And sort of like, you know, just walk around <laughs> doing my laundry. Actually, frankly, five-inch platform boots are a real struggle, so I try not to get in and out of them as much as possible. I kind of stumbled into doing the teaching personal finance like David Bowie completely accidentally. I led this huge bike ride in Portland for years called Bowie versus Prince, way before they were both associated with each other. I actually led it for 10 years. Oh, wow. And starting in 2007, I believe, and... I obviously could not ever repeat costumes because that would be just a (laughs) mortal sin. And so it is every year. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
1: of course. And the ride got so big, it was like fifteen hundred people by the end that we actually had to start in two different locations with Team Bowie and Team Prince.
3: Oh, nice. And
1: so I led Team Bowie. And so we kind of, you know, we had this faux rivalry. We even once had like a three hundred person tug of war between the Bowie's and the princes. (laughs) And we had an actual legal gay wedding between a prince cosplayer and a Bowie cosplayer one year, which was like a thing I set on the list as a goal. Anyway, (laughs) but I had like 10 Bowie costumes after years of leading this ride. I kind of stumbled into teaching personal finance. And realized, like, oh, this is a really excellent way to like disarm people and make it a little easier for them to like people expect one thing when they think they're gonna talk about investing or paying off student loans. And usually they really put it off. It feels very dry to them. And if you walk out wearing like a huge, ridiculous Ziggy Stardust wig and glitter spandex and five-inch platform boots, suddenly someone's expectation doesn't match the reality and you can kind of disarm them and then you can have a real conversation about money.
0: Absolutely. So I love everything you just said, except for the very beginning of your sentence or that set of sentences. Oh, I don't think it's possible to actually stumble into personal finance. Isn't that like a <laughs> steel trap that has like jaws and of death that need to be pried apart? You know, personal totally. finance is something everyone seems to try to avoid. No one. Act- <laughs> I,
1: yeah, no, I totally understand. I, I genuinely did stumble into it. So I spent most of my career working in really small nonprofits, I lived on a hippie commune when I first moved to Oregon, and then I worked as a live-in social worker at a house for homeless young mothers, and then I did two years in AmeriCorps, and I had always been very frugal because, like, at one point, I lived in an actual tree. You really cannot own much stuff when you live in a tree. And, wow. uh <laughs> And I, like, built my own house out of, like, recycled political yard signs and lived in a geodome. I'm cheap. And... <laughs> I'd always been good at saving money. I never really thought that much about it. And spending money in accordance with my values was just something that was hugely motivating for me as someone that was always trying to fundraise to, like, keep women from, you know, ending up back in the prison system or get custody of their kids back. And like by the end of my first 11 month term in AmeriCorps, you make like $800 a month at AmeriCorps. I saved like $2,000 and people were like, how are you doing? (laughs) And I was like, it's not that hard. Just don't have debt and don't spend money. And it's very easy (laughs) to save
2: money. Right. (laughs) But we live in America. You have to spend money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, I think actually like my queer identity, I'm originally from the Midwest. I spent about half my day in Kentucky and half in Ohio In my teenage years, like super butch, shaved head, you know, all black clothes. I truly believed that it was so challenging to exist within society as a queer person in that kind of environment in high school. You know, almost all the people I knew that stayed back at some point ended up being gay bashed. And it was just so hard to exist in that world that resisting consumerism, which was kind of being fed to me, was was relatively easy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like another thing that I was trying to be handed that didn't fit me. So eventually, a bunch of people were like, how do you handle money? And I was like, uh, maybe I should start teaching about this. Right. I actually worked for a small nonprofit, and we had 30 employees, and... I was the only one using the 401k. And so they came to me and were like, we're going to get rid of the 401k because you're the only staff member <laughs> using it. <laughs> no. And I was like, please, please let me teach a workshop to my coworkers to try to convince them to start saving for retirement instead of getting rid of the 401k. Like if I can get enrollment up, can we keep it? And that was the first time I taught personal finance and that was a couple years ago. So, awesome. yeah. nice.
2: so did you. the 401k stay?
1: The 401k stayed, but I... Will admit it wasn't really because of my class. The main reason it stayed is we were a little penny wise and pound foolish at that nonprofit and they were going to charge us to shut it down. Oh Oh. wow! But we didn't match, and so after my class, I ended up telling a bunch of people like, actually, probably a Roth makes more sense for you
2: than Uh the four hundred one k. That's true. That's true.
0: Now we're getting into the deep stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
2: This is why you need a Ziggy Stardust uniform because we don't want to talk about fees. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right. As soon as we start talking about expense ratios, I'm like, I've got more glitter. I
3: swear it'll be okay.
2: Oh, funny. So. Can you elaborate, please, on how did you save $2,000 on an $800 a
0: month salary? I think that there's probably two reasons why John is asking that question. One, I think that there are a lot of individuals in the queer community who are serving in a space similar to the where you were at. They are the artists and the activists who are a part of the nonprofits or the individuals who are serving the underserved communities. And sadly, they are the ones who... <laughs> end up becoming underserved because they don't make enough money because of the way our consumerism society is. So I think that there's that aspect. But on the flip side, there is a growing sector of the queer community that is making a lot of money. And sadly, they're the ones who aren't saving any of it. So give us an idea of how the ones at both ends of the spectrum can do a better job.
1: <laughs> so I think that, you know, your shovel is bigger if you're making more money, but the whole is the same. And so much of it has to do with that increasing that gap between your expenses and your income. And if your income is low, sometimes that can be a side hustle. I hate the idea that like to survive in the nonprofit industry, you have to have a second job. But in many ways, like I had 40 jobs in my 30s. I added it up recently. And at any given time, I had usually about five jobs. (laughs) And a lot of that had to do with just always hustling, always trying to have a little bit of money coming in, which sounds really exhausting, but I got a lot of value from my work. And Mm so for me, I found it really liberating. Like I didn't get paid super well for any of the one jobs, but I loved doing them. So increasing the income if you're in the lower income side of the spectrum. But the other is you just got to get creative, right? Like I lived in a queer housing co-op, so I was able to really reduce my expenses when I was in AmeriCorps based on that. And I... Only rode a bike, so I didn't have to deal with transportation costs, which really made a huge difference. Transportation and housing being the two biggest things. But one of the really key things for me was that I didn't take out any debt and I waited to go to college until I was 24 so that I could get a full ride. And that very much had to do with not wanting to take out debt for school.
0: I have to applaud you for that, specifically the last portion there. John and I did a podcast a few episodes back. I want to say it's 98, maybe 97, where we interviewed someone from Student Loan Hero, and she's a huge advocate for our community. But she brought some statistics that were quite shocking that the LGBT community has about 17% more student loan debt than the overall general population. And that's an additional roughly $16,000 that we're trying to pay off. And Like you said, be creative. There are ways to get to school without having to take on this massive amount of student loan debt that you're going to be paying off and struggling with, especially if your desire is to be in the arts and humanities or the social services. Those degrees are so expensive if you can find any way to get them paid for (laughs) through some other means than a student loan. We recommend that and applaud you for doing that.
1: (laughs) I mean, I obviously had a lot of privilege that it ended up working out well for me that I was able to do that. But I made this choice to move to Oregon when I was 18, when I think Oregon's unemployment rate at that point was 16%. And so, you know, I never made above minimum wage. I usually made less than minimum wage because I had these weird like gigs like AmeriCorps, which... The first rule in AmeriCorps is don't do the math. It works out to like three bucks an hour or something. Right. Uh, (laughs) But one of the big things is I did two terms in AmeriCorps and I got $5,500 of scholarship money for each term that I did in AmeriCorps. And you have seven years to use that. And I knew that at age 24, my parents' income would no longer count on the FAFSA. And I still do a lot of counseling with queer youth that are experiencing homelessness or are transitioning out of homelessness, and a ton of them are no contact with their parents. You covered this in the Student Loan Hero episode, but not being able to get a parent to fill out a FAFSA. If you're under 24, you either have to appeal directly to the institution or you have to be able to pay out of pocket. And right. for me, I was able to take classes at community college that I was able to you know, pay out of pocket for. Up until I was 24, and because I'd done super well on those, it would have been actually a lot more expensive for me to go to a state school, even though I would have graduated earlier, because I went to a private institution, they fully funded me. Nice, Uh, nice. And that was a very strategic decision. I applied at a lot of places because also I had had a lot of years of work experience in social services that was really appealing to a lot of these schools. And so that really helped. I did go to a school that has a pretty sizable endowment. And so they were able to fully fund me.
2: Nice. Nice. So since you brought the conversation up, what advice do you provide for homeless youth who can't get access to FAFSA?
1: Quite often appealing directly to the institution that you want to go to makes a huge difference. If they're still under 18, then I actually often try to work really hard to get them emancipated because if you're emancipated at the age of 18, which is a harder process in Oregon, but it's relatively easy in California if you're self-supporting. If you get emancipated before you're 18, then your parents' income will never count on the FAFSA and you don't need their information. So that makes a huge difference if they're below 18. If they're over 18 and they just have, you know, trash fire parents that kick them out because they're gay, then usually there's a couple different ways you can work with them. Now, bizarrely, joining the military is an option, not a ethical option for everyone. But now a lot of queer youth can join the military. And that will mean that your parents' income does not count on the FAFSA. And that's how both of my parents paid for college was the military.
2: If you're 18 or older and you're not emancipated from your parents, you can join the military. And and then their
1: their income doesn't count. So there's a couple exceptions for being declared independent. If you're in graduate school, any age under 24. So if you finished undergrad, then your parents' income doesn't count. If you're married, then only your spouse's and yours' income counts. And if you're a member of the military.
2: Gotcha. Wow. I didn't know that about the military. That's There's a, a
0: lot of creative ways going yeah. on right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, obviously, I don't think that joining the military, especially if you're gender nonconforming, it's right. not the most awesome place to be for a lot of people. But, you know, it was how both of my parents were able to go to college and be the first in their family to graduate college. I was born on an Air Force base. So <laughs> yeah. oh, <yeah>. uh, Wright Patterson. <laughs> In Ohio. I was going to say Ohio.
0: Yeah, I was for some reason I was thinking that was South Dakota, but I think that that, obviously that was wrong. (laughs) Oh,
1: Having spent some time in South Dakota, you know, Ohio was tough, but South Dakota would have been tougher.
0: Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, that was the place where I kind of went to find myself to determine if I was going to come out.
1: (laughs) Where in South Dakota?
0: (laughs) Well, at least it was nice. I was in the Black Hills. So it was a beautiful area. But it was a very different world and a different time in my life. <laughs> so a weird decision.
2: You know, when most people come out and they want to find themselves. They go to New York or San Francisco or to Portland or to, I don't know, David goes to South Dakota.
1: <laughs> yeah, I. But it worked. you are a unique one <laughs> yes. in that count. But I feel like you'll know. You'll be like, well, being gay here is hard. So I guess if I still feel gay, I'm probably gay. <laughs> well,
0: and the, yeah. the interesting thing is, I guess maybe similar to your personal finance story is I kind of didn't necessarily go there to find out that I was gay. I wasn't searching for a gay life. I went there to find myself, to actually go internal. And that's what I ended up doing. And after I left South Dakota, that's when I was like, okay, this is the choice I'm going to make. And I did. I came back to Colorado and and came out. And it was as gay as you can be. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, we're off topic here. Let's get back. <laughs> I,
1: oh, but I have a story about South Dakota coming out. Oh, nice. Okay. I don't know. Is it too off topic? No, not at no go ahead.
0: <laughs> we love stories. We, yeah, let's have some fun. <laughs>
1: so I try to travel like around Christmas or on Christmas Day as much as possible because it's cheaper and I'm not Christian, so I enjoy it. I was on an Amtrak train from Chicago through North Dakota, through the plains to Portland on Christmas day one year. And there was this, and I was dressed as Bowie because I just happened to be (laughs) dressed as Bowie. Um, (laughs) I am a big fan of being dressed as Bowie on long distance train rides. And I ended up meeting this 15 year old kid who was going to Montana to meet his dad because they had shared custody, his mom and his dad for Christmas. And he came out to me over the course of this 40 hour train ride. And This was like, I think, close to eight years ago now. And he messaged me and he was like, I just want to let you know how much that like conversation that we had and the fact that there was someone that was like living their life and happy with their life and willing to dress in ridiculous outfits like that (laughs) on a train and was happy being gay meant so much to me. And I'm now like happy and out. and I live with my boyfriend and uh, it was just. Very sweet. So that's my day in, in the Dakotas story.
2: Awesome.
0: Anyway. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. <laughs> that wasn't David Orton by any no, chance. He, certainly <laughs> wasn't. <laughs> you know, what I, I love about that story, though, is that there are times in our lives when we may not be in the place or where we think we're at, but we're being influenced by other things around us. And that is part of the reason why John and I, and I think why you do what you do is we know that. <laughs> No one is ever really ready to say, okay, I'm going to sit down and figure my finances out. People rarely ever say that. But we're here to kind of tell these stories or bounce some tidbits off of you so that when you're thinking about other things, this can be worked into the rest of your life. And that's really how we did our personal finance, our debt story as well, is we just kind of figured these things out. And whether it's coming out or coming out about your finances and getting your shit together, I think we need those kinds of stories.
1: I think that stories of people that look like you or are in the same career view is so valuable to understanding how your relationship with money can change and maybe like the ways in which you're not happy with your relationship with money. Right. But at the same time, like I've had a lot of people who have picked up the book not because they really want to get their money together even though that's the title but because they really like cats and they're like yeah I should probably get my money together (laughs) and that is like the number one thing that I want from the book is that you're like yeah I really like cats and shiny things so I'll get this (laughs) oh maybe I should work on like my debt snowball but the other thing is like one of the people that was reading the book and going through we did a weekly chapter like rollout for the backers of the kickstarter campaign before the book came out is he said, I realized you're only ready when you're ready. And then Absolutely. when you are, it all becomes so much easier because something will change in you one day and you'll realize like, oh, I'm sick and tired of being broke mm-hmm. and I want to figure out a way out of this.
2: Right. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, I think David and I knew that we didn't have the best financial situation. And we just finally came to a decision one day that, you know, we're tired of this and everything that we're doing is wrong and our situation keeps getting worse. Let's fix it. And it wasn't until then that nothing else mattered. What anybody else said, anything else that we read, despite the fact that we were also we were in the financial services industry helping people, none of it mattered until we actually made the decision that we're tired of this. We've got to change the status quo
1: because it's not easy, right? Like the stuff, it's not complicated, but it's not easy, right? And it takes that like fortitude within yourself to go, no, I'm not going out for drinks. I'm paying off my debt, or Like, yeah, I... Do save for retirement, and that doesn't make me like a bad or yuppie person just because I'm choosing to save for retirement, right? Right. Like we all have these internal money stories we tell ourselves that we have to unwind if we decide that we really want to change the way we're relating to
0: money. Right, and whether it's our upbringing and our non-accepting families or the community that we've joined and us trying to appease or be a part of that community, we've learned some habits along the way, and those. habits are so difficult to break. Whether it's, you know, spending so that we can be away from our family or spending so that we can be accepted by our group of friends or spending to make ourselves feel better. Those habits are so hard to break. And there's, (laughs) we always say there's always somebody there championing you while you dig yourself into debt. Everybody wants to see you in that new car or taking that vacation or buying a house or getting married and spending a ton of money on a wedding. Everybody is championing you along the way. But nobody's there saying, "Yes, you're getting out of debt. Yes, I, you're paying off your student loans." You know. So totally.
1: And then there's a lot of like people that kind of get angry at you if you do celebrate the fact that you're debt-free, right? Yes. Like I see folks that are like, "We paid off our mortgage, like really" massive tasks, right? That'll say like, hey, we paid off our mortgage on Facebook and everyone else just gloms on with excuses about why they can't do it. And there is a point at which you have to realize for yourself and you have to understand when talking to other people about, you know, kind of financial accomplishments or goals that like your story is not their story and that like everyone is doing this themselves. And just by saying you do something, you are not passing judgment on their own. You know, right. they didn't ask you. They, all, you did, <laughs> all you did was say like, hey, I paid off my student loans and it took hard work to get here. So we're humans. It's natural to compare ourselves to each other. Right. But it can be really challenging to see other people kind of try to tear you down when you've worked through a big goal. On
0: right, that. right. You know, it's interesting you bring that kind of scenario up. We shared one of our podcasts in a very large gay Facebook group and it was the story of chad nash who has basically sold all of his stuff and has been traveling the world for the last four years and he does it on a very small amount of money but he continues to work while he travels and i shared his story kind of as the hope that it would inspire some people in the group and it was so funny one of the young men in the group just said yeah but i have bills and i just had to respond back he sold his house and he sold his fancy cars, and he downsized, but he also had bills. (laughs) And I think it was just kind of impossible for this guy to think that somebody else might also have bills. So we kind of get kind of in this little mini ecosphere of ourselves, and I can't break beyond this. And like we said, when it becomes apparent, and you do it, you do it with full force.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I hear that all the time. So I travel a fair amount. And I have never made particularly awesome money, but I always travel without going into debt. I live debt free. And I have so many people that are like, I have no idea how you afford to do X, Y, Z travel to this country. And I'm like, one, my budget is I post my spending every month on my website. Like I spell it out for you. And two, like I plan these trips in the future and I don't have a car. I share an apartment. I... I'm vegetarian so I spend 125 dollars a month on groceries. Like I make very specific choices so that I can live on enough money that allows me to have a you know lifestyle where I do travel. Also I'm not staying in the Ritz Carlton. Right. <laughs> in every city I'm in, I think people they are so caught up in their own narratives about what is possible for them that they view me simply doing something as an attack on them. Like so I eat tacos for breakfast every morning. I love talking about it. We talk about it all the time on the oh My Dollar podcast. Um, <laughs> and I get so many requests being like, what are these tacos and why do you talk about them so much? So I posted the whole like recipe, if you can call it that, online because it costs 22 cents per taco. I have a spreadsheet, of course. <laughs> a taco sheet? And,
3: yeah, of <laughs> course. And I,
1: I track like the fluctuations in the price of the ingredients because I've been doing it for a long time. Anyway, it's a thing. But it's 22 cents a taco. I eat three tacos for breakfast every morning. And just by posting that, I had a bunch of people be like, well, I can't eat tacos for breakfast every morning because X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, was I asking to come
3: tacos.
1: into your house and prepare tacos for you every morning?
3: No. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I think like, this is a prime example though of figuring out what is most important in your life. What is it you want to do? What is it you want to achieve? And then reverse engineering eat tacos. <laughs> it. tacos. So, right. Reverse yeah. engineering it so that you can have that life. But I think so many of us get caught up been, okay, I must graduate high school. I must go to college. I must buy a house. I must get married. I must have children. I must have these two cars. I must live in this corporate life. And all of a sudden we end up living everybody else's life, but we're not living the life that we want to live. We get mad when we're not having the (laughs) life that we want and we see that somebody else is. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. And generally the things about my life that other people find enviable or like, you know, are incredulous that they can't do it themselves are the cheapest things about me. Right. <laughs> <And> I'm, <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, I do ride my bicycle everywhere. I have not paid for a gallon of gas in 15 years. It's like, I don't know what you want me to say.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you see these individuals living in this very narrow bandwidth of experiences in life. They go to work nine to five, nine to five, nine to five, take a one week vacation Nine to five, nine to five, take another one week vacation, you know, if they're lucky. And they live within that narrow bandwidth because they kind of, like we said, have kind of become accustomed to a lifestyle. They have certain habits. They can and cannot do certain things based on their belief system. Whereas you have in many ways said, fuck the belief system. (laughs) I'm going to do what I want to do. And if that means I eat tacos for breakfast every single day so that I can travel 25 countries, then I'm going to do that, right?
1: I'm at 33 now. Oh, nice.
0: (laughs) Wow, nice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but that's true for everyone, right? Like good and effective budgeting always starts with your values. And trying to attack something really big in whatever your financial life goal is, so paying off debt, you know, saving up to buy a house, whatever that big goal is to you, that always requires you to start from a place of your values. So... You know, when I post my budget online, people try to say, oh, but that won't work for me. And I go, not only am I not asking you to, I'm asking you to budget for your values. Like my budget would make you feel deprived in some areas. And then like absolutely ridiculous on the amount I spend on like stationary and fancy pens and (laughs) glitter spandex. And that isn't a judgment on either one of us. Like it's just you do you is the cardinal rule of budgeting is my belief. Like you can't just go download perfect budget off the internet and have it work for you. Like It sounds so hippy-dippy to say like, oh, you have to think about your values. But if you don't sit down and think about what your values are, you're going to hate budgeting. You're going to hate paying off debt because you don't understand what kind of that why is underneath it. Even if that why is simply like, it could be something as big as like, I want to be able to quit my job and travel the world for a year. But it could be something as simple as like, I want to stop being in this panicked paycheck to paycheck cycle because security is one of my core values. And I never want to have to rely on someone else again. And I know that if I save up money, I'm going to get out of that cycle. Like core values don't have to end in, you know, hiking up a a giant mountain goals, but they can if you want them to.
0: Right. I just have to say that there are rainbows and unicorns going off and jumping around everything you just said, because this is exactly what John and I believe as well. We recently released our seven-day debt freedom challenge on our website, and the very first exercise that we encourage individuals to go through is one all around understanding what motivates you what are your hopes and dreams? It's because those are your values and those values will inform the financial decisions that you make later on. And unless you're Karen Walker, a three olive martini or six three olive martinis every Friday night and Saturday night is probably not your financial value, right? So it's not (laughs) a value in life. I have nothing wrong with martinis. (laughs) Back off my martini, sir. Well,
1: and there's, some kind of purchases that can represent values or they could represent emotions, like an emotional spending. And you just have to tease out which they are. And martinis might be hanging out with your friends, which is really important to you. Community is one of your core values. And like you've kind of factored in that a martini on Friday night is how you see certain friends of yours. And like you're building that into the budget because it's something that you've decided supports your values. Six martinis maybe getting slashed, rarely someone's (laughs) core value. But, you know, by the same token, like it could be lust that's motivating you or any number of other emotions or just like the guilt of other people. You know, as you said, there's always someone cheering you on to spend more money and get you into a financial hole and not get you out. Right. But you can always think about what in my values is substitutable with something cheaper or something that will help me get towards my other financial goals. And if you realize like, hey, drinks with friends, the thing that makes me feel good about that is not the martini. It's not the really awesome lights in the club or whatever. It's actually getting to have really good conversations with my friends. Why can't I invite them to my house instead? Right. Like there's plenty of reasons why You can find substitutes, or you can just choose to build it into your budget. Like you're not a bad person if you want to go to have martinis on Friday, (laughs) but you you have to plan for it.
2: (laughs) I'm going straight. I'm probably going straight to hell anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that's what
1: everybody in Kentucky told me. So you know,
0: I think it was David Ray was on our podcast. He's financial planner L A. and he's also identifies as queer. And one of the things he mentioned in that podcast episode was, I don't care what you spend your money on. As long as when you're spending, you're spending on things that actually align with what really moves you in life, what drives you in life. Because most of us can stop and say, okay, X or Y, those two things are probably not what really, really fundamentally move me in life and make me happy, put a long-term smile on my face.
1: Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of this is probably part of your seven day challenge. But one of the things that I really recommend is, especially if you don't have a habit of it, is tracking your spending and then go back and look at tracking your spending, what you actually ended up regretting a couple of days later. Like One of the big things I have people do is just like put emoticons next to your purchases at the end of the week. And this is really helpful if you have a partner like actually sitting down with them and going like, yeah, I really thought that I liked going out to eat at lunch every day. But like at the end of the week, I look at that amount of money and I go like, oh, there is bigger, better things I could be doing with that money. Or like, hell yeah, that $2 I spent on candy that was definitely an impulse purchase. I still feel great about it. You know, Like it's very helpful to look at that. And you're always going to have some regrettable spending. You're always going to have some impulse purchases because we are humans. But you can lower the amount of regrettable spending you have. And you can also create systems where maybe you don't feel as guilty about it because, you know, alcohol and bars are a great example. If you know that it's within the budget and that you're going to, you know, stop before you're, you know, embarrassing yourself or <laughs> overspending, then suddenly it feels a lot better to, like, go hang out with friends than if you're like, oh, my God, I just spent $18 on a martini and now I can't pay rent next
2: week. Right. Right. Yeah. That was so apparent for David and I when we actually went back. David, he, he reviewed 12 months worth of our expenses. All along, we thought we were, like, poor. But we realized, oh my God, we we're, we're spending. We were stupid. <laughs> we're, we're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on wine. We don't need to do that. <laughs> if we just shift this money
0: around a little bit, we can pay off our debt very fast. And we'd actually have a much take a trip life. to Napa and have <laughs> some wine in Napa.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that was one of the big things. Like, I quit drinking a couple years ago, and I think by my calculations now, I've saved over a thousand dollars based on my like average rate of spending from quitting drinking. I wasn't. A super heavy drinker. But one of the big things is that like last year, I think like my income was like twenty two thousand dollars, but I still managed to go to 13 countries and take several trains from Dublin, Ireland, all the way to Shanghai, China and and spend like a month going across 13 countries. And I had so many people be like, there is absolutely no way I could afford to do that. And I was like, I guarantee you make more than me. I make I I make Oregon's minimum wage. (laughs) 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 Like (laughs) You work in tech. So you're making choices with your money. You just don't realize you're making choices like those trade-offs already exist. For example, spending a bunch of wine at home instead of wine in Napa is a choice that you're making and you're just doing it unconsciously. And if you sit down and think about it and actually track the data and have a conversation with yourself and your partner, then you'll start to realize like, oh, I did make choices.
2: Maybe they weren't the right choices. So we've talked about tacos, which makes me think of margaritas. We've talked about martinis. We've talked about wine. <laughs> My Earlier husband today, we're is talking about alcoholic. whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> that was a perfect How, transition. But... That was
2: a transition. How can we use David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust as muses to help us with our personal finance?
1: Well, I think one of the really key things is that What all us talk about values, a lot of people can get locked in and think that this is like a test and that if they write down three values on a piece of paper, then it can never change. (laughs) And that like, I don't know the values police are going to come and attack them if they don't spend according to their values in a couple of years.
2: Jerry Falwell died. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) As far as I understand, there are no values police.
1: (laughs) But I have like an internal 18 year old, butch punk rock me that really, really judges 30 year old yuppie femme me and (laughs) what I choose to spend my money on now. But David Bowie, one of the core things is that he was always reinventing himself and he was always thinking about how he changes the way he's presenting himself and changing, you know, for him, it was his music. But in your own budget, it can be like, it's okay to change. You may have different priorities than you had when you were 22. And that's totally okay. Part of it is realizing that, like, budgeting is a living document. And it's a practice. It's not like a thing that you print out, you do it once, and then you file it away and you never look at it again. Financial management, like, not only must it be learned, like, no one comes out of the womb knowing what a Roth IRA is. It, <laughs> what? It also has... It also has to be practiced.
2: I I thought the vagina was a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) It
1: is. (laughs) I'm
3: confused.
0: (laughs) I never expected that word to come up on queer money, but it did.
1: (laughs) You don't have enough of my kind on the show.
2: (laughs) I blame Lillian. Hashtag blame Lillian. (laughs) We watched your TED Talk on YouTube the other day. It was very fascinating. Great job, by the way. Or not your TED Talk. Ignite, Ignite Talk, Talk. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which that, I could do a TED Talk. The Ignite thing kind of stresses me out because they have that <laughs> plot going and you have to keep up with the pictures. <laughs> that is
1: like the third time I did one. And the first time I did one, I did not realize how much you need to practice. Uh, and oh. it was very stressful. Oh, I bet. Uh, sure.
2: I bet. Yeah. You talked about David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust there, but you also talked about how David Bowie, I'm going to say this completely wrong, he converted his music to Bonds as was making interest off of his Bonds. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God, it was so amazing. So the Bowie bond, which essentially was a trading commodity that was created, he packaged up all of his music catalog, and then he essentially sold it as bonds. And they paid interest that was based on the royalties that he got from that music catalog back over 10 years and it actually like beat the stock market. It's technically more solvent than Greece was. Uh they're better <laughs> investments than Greek bonds. But yeah, he actually packaged up his catalog into bonds, which is just it's so fun because we think of him as like, you know, whimsical with great outfits. But he actually pioneered this whole instrument of artists being able to essentially use their back catalog as collateral. It was only tradable on like you and me couldn't go get it. So it was, you know, only tradable in certain kinds of markets. But gotcha. I still like to picture and imagine that they were like pieces of paper that looked like the savings bonds you got as a kid, <laughs> except that they had Ziggy Stardust on them. Right. Don't <laughs> right. you have
0: some pictures like that?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are not like the actual bonds. I didn't but think I, they the, were. <laughs> they're the bonds in my brain.
0: Right. So <laughs> Love that you created it at least though, because yeah, it makes it more real for everybody else. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So let's
2: dial it down just a little bit. What do you think are some of the biggest financial hurdles of the queer community?
1: You've talked about FAFSA, so I won't dive too much into that because I think you did an excellent job on the episode with Student Loan Hero on that. But one of the big ones is healthcare, and the reason healthcare I think is such a huge problem is even though marriage is legal in every U.S. state now, employment discrimination still happens all the time and is not banned in the majority of states in the US and gender identity discrimination is considered to be banned, but it happens all the time in reality, as we know. Right. And so I know a lot of people who are choosing not to get married because the risk of declaring their same sex partner or their, you know, gender of birth on employment applications because they could have fired, right? We just saw like last week another school teacher got fired after she got married to her girlfriend at a Catholic school in Florida. Healthcare has always been a problem. Finding queer inclusive doctors and even trans inclusive doctors is really hard. You know, especially like folks that are gender nonconforming or trans have much lower incomes on the whole, but a lot of them live in states where Medicaid didn't get expanded or Medicaid has literally no trans inclusive providers. Mm -hmm. Like I know a lot of rural trans folks that have to travel like four or five hours for a provider just to find someone to be able to go to the doctor. But just like, you know, a same sex couple that's cisgender, there's still a huge concern there because if one of you is kind of the breadwinner or just works at a job where you might have better healthcare coverage, you can have a real risk to your employment if you declare your partner on healthcare. And so quite often, I know folks that have been in long term committed relationships and might even be married, but are not on the same health insurance plan. And, you know, we never know what's going to happen with the exchanges. But
0: right. Right. John and I, I don't know, it's unfortunately or fortunately, we live in the bubble here in Denver. And so we don't experience a whole lot of that. But we see all of these stories and the fear that individuals have in many ways. It does basically freeze you when it comes to making the best financial decisions or even slightly better financial decisions for your future, or even for your right now. John and I wrote an article about this, about how when we finally did decide to identify as a couple on our health insurance, it saved us $100 a month. $100 a month may not seem like a lot of money to one couple, but to another couple, that could be a massive amount of money. And so it can really have benefits. But if you're worried about what your boss is going to say or HR department doesn't have a really good HIPAA control, they'll just, you know, free flow of information out the door. There are all those risks and factors that still come into play.
1: Right. And like HIPAA technically doesn't really protect you unless you work in healthcare, right? So, like, there's a lot of belief that HIPAA translates to the workplace, but it's only a healthcare provider rule. I just don't want people to believe that that information is legally protected because it isn't technically in the workplace. I mean, it's still a very good policy. <laughs> so right. if you're listening and you work at HR, yes, please continue like living up to HIPAA policies, but it isn't technically apply in that circumstance. But I also see couples that it's not even just losing out on being on the married income. If one of them has to get their healthcare off the exchange, but they're legally married and their married income is too high for a subsidy, you could end up paying hundreds of dollars more a month for just one partner to get healthcare if you're not able to put that partner on the other's employer plan. Right. So it can really be huge amounts of money. And a lot of people are really afraid of it. And you know, for quite a long time, healthcare rates were set by industry. So that's part of the reason that it's so expensive for hairdressers to get health insurance, because gay men are a large portion of hairdressers. And for a long time, the AIDS epidemic meant that essentially they were uninsurable. And so the rates were just absolutely skyrocket high based on that industry. A lot of those standards still apply.
2: No,
0: oh, I yeah. did not know that. I didn't know that yeah. either. The more yeah. you so know. if you
1: work at a gay men dominated industry, that might still be true. Right. Wow. <laughs> Which is why shopping through the exchange could make more sense in that case. But
2: Absolutely. So there's a lot of concerns to weigh there, especially for <laughs> yeah, many sorry. in our community. What's
1: that? You asked what the number one <laughs> way is, and I was like healthcare. Oh, it also includes at least 20 things.
2: <laughs> so it begs the question then: What solutions or resources do you recommend for the community to help them maybe satiate some of these concerns or address them?
1: I think it's really important that if you're dealing with healthcare issues in particular, you try to find a trustworthy navigator. You know, if you're already working with a financial planner, it's very likely that they have some experience. If you have a GLBTQ friendly, financial planner, but working with a healthcare navigator is free to you. They have to work in your own best interest and they can really help. But the other thing is just don't ignore this issue politically. I know we're all so burnt out right now because we're getting attacked from every side right now if you're in a minority in the U.S., but healthcare is really important, as is employment discrimination. I think a lot of people kind of believe that we've won the fight. Right. <laughs> right. And that, like, oh, we have marriage, so everything's fixed. And it's like, yeah, but you can still be fired for being gay. It's important to recognize that, like, we're not done and we still don't have equal rights. Mm-hmm.
0: So John and I keep saying, at least from our vantage point, that is probably the number one reason why we want more financially strong queer individuals is because. Very few other communities still have the political fight that we have at the state level and at the federal level. And I don't necessarily want to identify it as a fight because then it just we think angrily about that or it brings up anger. There is a lot of progress that we still have to make. And there are allies that are out there that want to help us. But unfortunately, sometimes those allies do need a paycheck as well. And our money is what helps those allies get into the places where they can help make the decisions that will benefit us.
1: I'm very lucky because I live in a state with a bisexual lady governor because we're awesome. But (laughs) (laughs) she's very delightful. I used to work in politics in Oregon, and there's only like 10 people that work in politics in Oregon because our state's like five people big.
0: (laughs) As I mentioned, we live in the bubble in Denver. It's so funny. We go to conferences regularly and we talk to financial services professionals, individuals who are working in places like Ohio or Idaho or. Arkansas. And we explained to them, you do realize that when you're talking to an LGBT person, that they can still be fired in this state because of who they are, if they tell their employer, the shock that comes over these people's faces of, I didn't realize I needed to know that kind of information about my clients. And we like, yes, they should be telling you, but you should also know that about them.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm from Ohio. Originally, I have friends who are a queer couple. One of them is a trans man. And the other carried their kid and they had to use a donor from outside of Ohio because in Ohio, a donor's family would have more rights than their father of the kid because Ohio won't change gender on birth certificates. You know, Social Security Administration, everyone else will change it. And same sex second parent adoption was illegal in Ohio. Right. And I mean, that's a perfect example of like, that's the really nitty gritty law stuff where you're like, oh what state this donor sperm comes from is really important, (laughs) which is ridiculous. But at the same time, like this is the kind of stuff that queer people have to think about, that financial advisors and lawyers, if they're serving the community, are aware of. But if they aren't really aware, you might end up making a mistake that could like, you know, potentially lose you the rights to your kid. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a huge deal.
2: Absolutely. And so now we've mentioned vaginas and sperm on this show. (laughs) (laughs) We've (laughs) almost made a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to even it. (laughs) Yeah, we want to make sure everybody feels like they're represented. (laughs) So we've talked about your Ziggy Stardust muse. We've talked about your Ignite talk and your book, but you also have a boot camp. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I have a get your money together boot camp. Everything is get your money together. And there's decidedly less Bowie in it. It's essentially an eight hour course that walks you through everything all the way from setting up a budget to picking insurance to taxes and It's like eight plus hours of video. I try to use a lot of puns, hopefully make it kind of fun. yeah, and it's all broken down into really accessible lessons and it's basically translating what I do in person online so
2: nice, nice. that's great. Somebody could in theory get through that in a weekend, right?
1: Yeah, I actually recommend structuring it in (laughs) weekly lessons and taking about six weeks to go through it. Okay. Mainly because I want you to like track your spending in between the first week and the second week. But if you were really excited about binging on financial literacy, you totally could. It's not yeah. really the best Netflix and chill, but if you want to try, you can.
2: Just think how much progress you could make if you put down the Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's
1: not the $8 a month, but it's like, what else could you be doing with that time? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Opportunity cost.
2: So where else can our listeners follow you and Oh My Dollar and I guess Ziggy Stardust?
1: Yeah. Well, you can find the book at omydollar.com slash book. And the podcast is available pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. Just look for Oh My Dollar in the podcast store. And we're in eight cities. Unfortunately, Denver is not one of them. But we're on broadcast radio as well. So if you are someone who still listens to terrestrial radio, you can find it. What (laughs)
2: station is that?
1: It depends on the city. Locally here, I'm carried by X-Ray FM, but I'm on the public radio exchange. So if your city doesn't have Oh My Dollar and you want it, tell me your station and we'll try to get it there. <laughs> nice.
2: nice. X-ray sounds like it's like bionic. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much it. It's bionic. I mean, it's in a basement. But, you know. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Well, thank you so um, much for coming on our show today. We really appreciate you sharing your story. It seems to be a lot of overlap in our message and your message and I think that's great for our, our listeners to hear. Yes.
1: Awesome. It's been so delightful. I, I, Mostly, really enjoyed hearing about South Dakota. So you know, <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe we need wow. to dedicate an entire podcast to talk about David finding himself in no. South Dakota. No, I think
1: you could make that a really beautiful narrative story set <laughs> in the Black Hills. We could
2: totally do it to a YouTube video and have like pretty pictures. Yes, pretty pretty <laughs> pictures.
1: I'm signing up. I'll watch that. All right, <laughs> nice. All right, cool. thank you so much, David and John. Absolutely. Thank
0: you, thank you, Ian. Woohoo! <laughs> what an awesome conversation. Thank you, Lillian. And although we didn't stay on topic the whole show, it was a blast. We definitely need to join you for a cup or a pint in Portland sometime soon. Remember to check out the Oh My Dollar radio show on xray.fm. Make sure you join us next week as we discuss a tool that will help you and yours with filing your taxes next year. Thanks again for joining us this week and have a great one. Bye-bye.
2: Okay. We just serviced you, now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at Queer.Money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> it would help me if I had a personal chef made all my, all my meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight
0: for <laughs> <laughs> The other end, I like the butts, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh,